G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. As you get away from the big city and into regional areas, you start to notice some of the differences in the way healthcare is offered. When you get away from the regional areas into the country areas, there's a bigger difference again. But when the nearest doctor and hospital is only available by calling in the RFDS, you have to be a pretty special kind of person to undertake nursing in outback clinics where anything can and usually does happen. A new book celebrates those special people and allows them to offer some insight into their world in their own words. The book is called Bush Nurses, and the person responsible for compiling these stories is Annabelle Braley, who recently dropped by our studios for a chat. She started by explaining how she came to be involved with the project. Hello, Matt, and thank you for having me here to talk to you. I live in southwest Queensland, and I've been working as a storyteller for some years, mostly by fluke. I'm not a qualified journalist, but I do love telling other people's stories. And I had the opportunity some years ago to um, start writing for R.M. Williams Outback magazine. Uh, again, a bit by fluke, I, I pitched a story and they said yes. And, and I've been writing for them ever since. And I've, I've written for some other regional um, publications as well in Queensland. Early in 2012, I wrote a story about rural and remote health um, called Health Matters for the magazine. And um, not long after that, Penguin Books actually uh, rang me and asked me, would I be interested in being involved in this project, collecting stories about bush nurses? I'm not actually sure whether they knew that I had trained as a nurse in the past. I suspect they probably did because I guess they, you know, did a bit of research before they rang me. <laughs> um, but anyway, they asked me would I be interested and of course, you know, I was never going to say no. It was a fantastic opportunity for me and um, one I really appreciate, but I also, f- for personal reasons, but I also appreciated the opportunity to do that because... I have always thought that um, bush nurses were probably a bit underrated, under undervalued. And so I saw it as a wonderful opportunity to celebrate what nurses in rural and remote areas actually contribute to their communities. And I think that generally, you know, rural communities and, and certainly remote communities run on nurse power. You know, the, the nurse in the community, if there's a nurse in the community, and often a nurse is the only medical help available, if there's a nurse in the community, they're often the linchpin. You know, people, they know what's going on in the community. They know how everyone is. They help with anything that's happening. So they, I consider them pretty important people. Um, but I think that they haven't had a very high profile. So it was a fantastic opportunity to, um, you know, to profile them and, and uh, get people hearing about the kind of things that they do in the course of their daily work. Now, you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the, the book about uh, your experiences as a nurse. You, you trained originally as a nurse in a big city hospital, but uh, I had to laugh at your comment, the fact that uh, you're always in trouble because you are sitting down talking to the patients more so than looking after their well-being. Yeah, well, I, you know, there are some that would say that that's the very core of good nursing, actually, is is um, having a having a communication and, and relationship with, with um, patients so you actually do know what it is they need. But... Uh, my interest, I always, when I was young, um, I've been telling this story as well, I actually wanted to be a hairdresser. 
And um, I'm of an age where my father had um, quite a lot of say in what my future was going to be. So he said, well, no, you're going to be a nurse or a teacher. So I said, oh, okay, and went off and did my nursing training, kind of. It wasn't quite that simple, but something like that. And looking back, I think that probably the reason I really wanted to be a hairdresser was because everybody tells hairdressers their stories. You know, everybody, hairdressers are the natural counsellors of the world. And I think that there are probably a lot of people who go to the hairdresser and, you know, they come out with a great hairdo as well. But they also, you know, they kind of just dump a bit of stuff on the hairdresser and they go off and, you know, they feel a lot better for all sorts of reasons. So I think that probably appealed to me as much as the creative side of hairdressing. However, I became a nurse. And uh, so instead of uh, cutting their hair and listening to their stories, I sat on their beds and listened to their stories. (laughs) But but there were a number of things. I mean, obviously, you know, I went through all my training. Um, one of the most significant things, I, I think, given you've mentioned me starting in a city hospital, was that I realised, and a lot of the rural and remote nurses will say this as well, that there's a lot more opportunity um, in the bush for exposure to what's happening as a, as a training nurse or a trained nurse. Um, certainly when I went to Charleville, I felt that I had a lot more exposure to um, nursing practice and different different situations than I had in a, in a big city hospital because in a big city hospital you've got lots of backup, lots of other people and you have to be on the right shift at the right time to see whatever. Whereas in the bush, you know, if something happens, I mean, I trained at Charleville and um, back in those days um, I, when I was I finished my training at Charleville rather, it was on a regional training program. But Charleville actually also at the time trained enrolled nurses and nurse aides. So they actually did have a training school there, although the um, RN, the nurses training BRNs went to Toowoomba General on a regional training program. We went to Toowoomba for um, four months of the year. But because they had a school there and because we had people like um, Dr. Louis Ariotti, who was a, a, a very well-known and, and influential and very, very accomplished surgeon working out of Charleville-based hospital, we had um, at the time when I went there, Tim O'Leary was the flying doctor in Charleville. We had, there were four other private um Practitioners in Charleston, there were a number of um, hospital doctors. Um, there was a, you know, there was a an um, an aura of learning, and um, I think that, you know, if, if if anything happened, you know, you all heard about it because it's only very small, even despite that that size staff, which is very small. You know, you could be a part of, or at least be aware of whatever was going on. So from that perspective, it was certainly a um, a better exposure, and I think also. You know, being hospital trained, I'm still a bit inclined to think hospital training has advantages over university training. That's a personal opinion, but I just think that, you know, nursing is really about looking after the person. And I think that you really have to connect with a person to know how to do that. And I don't necessarily think that you can learn that, you know, in a, in a classroom. And um, maybe if they have more prac. That's not saying that university trained (laughs) nurses aren't fantastic. You know, they are, but it's just that different quality of of how you go about getting that training and and learning that thing about connecting. So, um, you know, it was an interesting experience. And um, you're going to have to cut this bit, Matt, because I forgot what the question was. (laughs) So looking at the fact that, uh, you know, you've done some training in the big city hospitals, you've worked in a, a regional hospital, you probably have an affinity then for hearing the stories of the bush nurses, those who are working in um, some regional areas. And as you get further out, you, you hear the stories, how they differ from city to regional to rural. And, and I guess you've, you've tried to capture some of that in the book, haven't you? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, 
I think that just going back to how the stories came to be collected, um, I some of the stories are written by nurses, um, although that was an exercise in perseverance in itself because a lot of nurses would say, and, and in actual fact, when Penguin first asked me about this project, I did say to them, you know, it's probably almost a contradiction in terms of asking a nurse to tell her own story because, you know, nurses by their very nature are, are, are caring, giving, nurturing kind of people and most of them will say, and some of them did say to me, oh, well, you know, of course my story is not very interesting, to which I said, well, you tell me the story and let me be the judge of that. <laughs> That's probably a good way because, to go about it. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, um, they are. And I think, you know, a number of them were busy or, you know, they just, I guess a lot of people didn't really understand how this would turn out either. And in fairness, I'm not, I mean, I, when we started, I knew it was going to be a collection of stories, but it, it's such it's such a better collection than I thought it would be, and I and I love the idea that it that it's across a hundred years, and it, and that it it's a bit of a social history of nursing, because there are common denominators. Obviously, the you know the caring, nurturing thing, um, you know, giving to the community, being linchpins, those things are the same. But while um, technology has changed everything, you know, there's I mean there's whiz bang everything these days. Mm. The more remote you are, the less likely to, that you are to have whiz-bang. That's one thing. Um, but even if you do have a bit of the whiz-bang, one of the things I've noticed throughout this book with the bush nurse, with nurses who work in the bush, is that, you know, they have that, there are some things that they do that are the same, you know, wherever. And I think that applies wherever you're nursing. I mean, you know, if, if someone needs a bad pen, they need a bad pen. Mm. You know, there's no way around that. Um, but I think... You know, I, I guess it comes back a bit to the technology. You know, in a big city hospital in these days, I think that staff probably rely a lot on technology. You know, you can look at a machine or, you know, read the data, whatever. Whereas um, in rural and remote areas where you may not have that technology, it's still about really connecting with the patient and finding what it is, you know, how they are feeling, where does it hurt, you know, what's changing, those kind of things. And that's always been the same. Because, you know, that's the bottom line of nursing is that connection. Over the process of collecting these stories, uh, as you said, you're looking also at uh, not just a collection of stories of, of those who are working in remote areas now, but um, collecting some of the stories from the past, some of the early days of nursing. Uh, and you've even touched on uh, some of the Australian inland mission nurses. What led you to, to going down that road, not just collecting the stories from the nurses who are working in, in remote areas now? Um, I think in part for myself because I've lived where I've lived. Um, before I live where I live now, um, my husband and I lived on a, on a relatively remote um, sheep and cattle property in southwest Queensland. And so, for instance, when I had – well, even when I was training, I mean, I knew about the AIM, I knew about the flying doctor, I knew about the AIM nurses. You know, when I was having our children, we went. I went to a flying doctor clinic, etc. So I guess through that there was an association with those with the early um, nurses. Um, I did a history for Outback Magazine. I did a history story last year um, on Frontier Services because Frontier Services actually celebrated a hundred years um, last year. Frontier Services, of course, is the name of the organisation which was um, the Australian Inland Mission uh, initially. And I don't think that anybody um, living in the outback, I don't think there's anybody who doesn't know who John Flynn is and doesn't appreciate um, what he developed across the outback. Uh, and, of course, the nurses were a huge part of that. 
you know, nurses were the nurses were on the ground um, long before the doctors were, and um, I think another another thing that struck me about this was, you know, doctors are obviously um, paramount to to good care anywhere, and we need to have more doctors in rural and remote areas without doubt, and and the doctors we do have, you know, we appreciate and and um, so forth, but I think that often what's overlooked is that for every good outcome a doctor has, there's often a nurse there at the beginning of it, you know, at the foundations, mm. because nurses are usually um, first responders. Now, there are also, in, I'm using nursing in a very broad sense there, and I did in the book as well, because I am aware that, that you know, the first responders aren't always nurses, that they can be either AMBOs or first responders, Aboriginal health workers, etc. And I, I uh, had some examples of those stories in the book because I wanted to include them. Mm. Um, while while this is specifically about nurses, those people come under that um, umbrella, in my opinion, because they are the people who offer that um, integral first response care. Mm. So you've managed to talk to a variety of different people. Can you tell us a little bit about the structure of the book? How did you go about collating all these stories and, and putting them together into one book? Now, I found it fascinating the way that... Uh, you've uh, broken it up into different sections and different focuses of the stories that you've received from these first responders, from the nurses, and and even some stories from doctors who have worked with nurses in remote areas. Mm. I think it was um, it, it kind of fell into place in a way. Um, you know, there are some very obvious thing, obvious things in health and and uh, in nursing, particularly babies, obviously, and the most predictable thing of all, that somewhere along the line everyone's going to die. Um, in between that, the other um, the other groupings kind of just came naturally because there are nurses at work now and there were also the stories that I got that were in the past. So looking back was, you know, an obvious chapter. Um, and, of course, talking about nurses working in rural and remote areas, the animals had to be in there. There had to be, there had to be a vet uh, section because so many nurses who work in rural and remote areas have said, and that's another common denominator as well across the 100 years basically, is that they treat everybody. You know, they don't, they don't discriminate against dogs <laughs> they um, or cats or whatever else. Um, even foals. Uh, there was a lovely story in there about um, a foal that a young nurse up in the Kimberley found she'd been abandoned by her Brumby mother. Dingoes had started um, nipping away at it. And they actually found the fold and brought it in and, and managed to, you know, to nurse it back to health. And, and uh, it now leads a productive life in a, in a writing school, I think, for the disabled. So I think that's, you know, one thing goes with the other. Nurses are caring, nurturing people and they'll care and nurture for whoever needs help. So actually deciding how to group the stories was kind of a natural transition. Deciding what stories to include was another thing. There were... I mean, in the in the end, there was a there was a limit to how many stories we could fit in, and I wanted it to be a cross section, not just to be all the same kind of stories. I didn't want them to be all, you know, the dramatic blood and gutsy kind of stories, I, and I didn't want this, all of the stories in any one section to be the same either. I wanted to have a cross section of how nurses actually look at themselves and what they do, and that was also one of the reasons for including the last chapter on, on you know, nurses looking ahead, future pathways it was called, because I think that 
it's getting harder to find people in all sorts of areas of profession to go to the bush, particularly in health. There are some wonderful young nurses out there who who are committed to having um, careers in rural and remote areas. And, of course, there are a lot of nurses still working out there who've been working there for a number of years. So, you know, they're a very important part of the future viability of the bush. And um, so I guess it was, you know, start at the beginning and, and follow through to a, I mean, you know, I started, I guess I didn't, when I started, I didn't know that it was going to go so far back. Part of that, the reason it started so far back was because um, Val Watson sent me her, her mother's stories. Her mother, Alice Martin, was a nurse in high country Victoria and she actually rode a horse on her rounds. And, and there are five of her stories from memory in the book. You know, that, they are wonderful stories. I mean, she was a very adventurous, resilient lady and you know, there's stories about bushfires and, you know, she rode down a mountain going to a going to a sick baby one night. And I think, you know, we all go on about the man from Snow River and wasn't he amazing and the ride down the mountain, etc. And I think, hey, come on, look at this, Martin. You know, riding her pony down. And granted, she had company, but, you know, she was she was um, she was a resilient, amazing lady. And and I guess they, they were the stories that got me thinking about the early stories. And to go back to your question, AIM. Um, AIM were the first nurses, so they had to be in there. And also I was particularly keen to include the story about Edith McQuaid-White, who was the matron of the Darwin Hospital during the Second World War, because, you know, she did an incredible job. At at one time, the hospital was actually in five different places, and she oversaw that, and she oversaw the the casualties from the bombing of Darwin, etc. And she wasn't ever really recognised, and I think that was one of the things that you know that's just typical. These these people, mostly women. There are obviously men out there, and some of them have been included in the book. But still, I would think that that predominantly nurses are women um, out there. Certainly, back in those old days, they were, and they would go off for you know two and three years mm. to really remote places with absolutely you know n- never mind about ringing mum on the phone or you know ringing your friends or going to the movies on Saturday for a bit of um, you know chill out not even in the ballpark. And while they were well supported, um, no doubt, by by the church, by John Flynn and by the church organisation around him, you know, they weren't there. Like they were, that was a long distance support network. And, you know, so these women went off and provided care and nurturing to their communities, you know, looked after whatever came in their door. And some of them were, you know, were really tough um, situations. Dulcie Andrew, who was one of the AIM nurses um, based in Halls Creek, actually, um, she and the nurse that were with her, they operated on a man one day with instruction over the um, ra- uh, the radio from a doctor in Wyndham. Now, that was actually a repeat of a story. When um, Halls Creek Hospital was first opened, it was because there'd been a bad accident there. And this this is in the in the book, so I won't go into too much detail, but, but a stockman at uh, Ruby Plain Station had been brought into Halls Creek and there was nobody there to help him. He'd, he'd, he'd had a bad accident off a horse. The postmaster in, in um, Halls Creek actually operated on, on him under instruction from a doctor in Perth who was who was actually, they were communicating over Morse code, by Morse code, over the, over the radio. I mean, I, it, it defies imagination. I can't mm. even imagine how they did that. I can't even really imagine how, how Dulcie Andrew did something similar 30 or 40 years later. Uh, over the radio, you know, that takes serious guts. And I think that's the other thing, you know, through all this. 
I just admire these people so much for their sheer guts, you know, to get out there and do what they do. And that's not just the old ones either. There is, you know, there are some stories, some wonderful stories, some modern stories about, you know, gutsy um, responses that, that, you know, I think most people would just turn green. Mm. Now, having read your book and and gone through the roller coaster, because I call it a, a real roller coaster of emotions at times, because you've got those funny stories that you mentioned about um, having to operate on animals and look after animals. And then you've got those those really heart-wrenching, challenging stories that show the tenacity of bush nursing, of uh, nurses who are injured themselves having to attend to other patients around them after a car accident or or having to encounter members of the local community who subsequently die from injuries sustained in an accident on a remote road somewhere. These are stories that not often you're going to hear from the nurses themselves. They're just going to say, well, you know, we we had to do something and it was done. How did you manage to, I guess, um, put them all together into one collection? There's so many different stories there. What was the most challenging aspect of getting the stories and, and putting them together in the book? Um, you're right. The most it, it was getting them to actually tell the stories. But I think that's where it was an advantage, me having a nursing background and also living where I live because I actually get what they do. Um, and I've done a reasonable amount of travel in remote Australia as well, so it's not like I've you know never been where they are. Um, and it was – I had some serious help. Um, I did an interview on Bush Telegraph, um, which – was fantastic because that got the word out there to a lot of people that um, I was looking for the stories. I use my networks. I've got pretty good networks across um, Australia in some ways, although interestingly this made me realise that, that they are limited uh, or certainly more limited than I thought because I guess because it's specific as well. But once I got talking to the nurses, you know, I discovered it's a very small world and a lot of them actually know each other. So sometimes they would tell each other stories. So then I would ring the person whose story I had been told and say, well, you know, I've, I've been told this, you know, is, is this correct? And we'd do it that way, you know. Or um, I was able to, thanks to Krona Plus, which is the Council for Remote Area Nurses in Australia, and it's now called Plus because it's actually, it, it started in um, 1983 as an organisation specifically for remote area nurses, but it's now actually broadened to, to include health workers in remote areas. And I got in contact with Krona Plus and I was actually able to pick up some of the stories through them and their magazine. I made contacts, et cetera. And they made it possible for me to go to their um, annual conference last year in Cairns, which was great because I actually met a lot of the nurses and some of them I heard about. You know, like it's a small world. As I said, a lot of them know each other. And I'm finding um, more and more that, you know, some of them have worked together. You know, the ones who've been out there for a long time, they've they've worked together in different places. It's It's... I don't know. It's it's uncanny. So, I guess it was um, while the challenge was getting them to tell their stories. Once they started telling them, and particularly if they were talking about each other, it became easier. And and then of course there's a whole group of nurses out there who were working in the 60s, 70s, 80s, who are obviously still alive but are retired, who were happy to talk about what they were, had done because it's not you know the concern about confidentiality etc. was not so marked in that group because 
because one of the things I had to be mindful of all through this was confidentiality of, mm. of not, um, you know, not exposing people indiscreetly. So I think that in the end, it was it was a kind of a bit of a snowball thing, you know. And and funnily enough, just yesterday I had another question from someone saying, you know, when are you going to do a sequel? I don't even know if that's I hadn't really thought about it until I was asked the question. But I think there are a lot more amazing stories out there, and it would be interesting one day to pursue that. One of the other things about all this was, even with the stories that we didn't, I didn't include, or with people who didn't even send their stories in, one of the things I kept saying was, and I would say to people now is, record your stories. In some way, record your stories, because they will be interesting to somebody, and they're certainly, if nobody else, your descendants. And a lot of the time I have people say to me, oh, you know, you, you should you should write about you know Granny or you know Bill Jones down the road or whoever because they've got this anyway. And I say take a tape recorder and go and record it. As long as somebody has recorded the detail, it can be written up later. Mm. But once those people die, it's lost. And with this, I'm almost contradicting myself now because obviously I found some stories even though those people <laughs> have passed on. But but you know they they're they're. they're few and far between, and, and people need to really record their story. So that was the other good thing about doing this was it, it actually records the history. Mm. Well, just finally, Annabelle, uh, looking at uh, the way you've put together the book and uh, the way you've talked about the variety of different nurses and, and health professionals who are working in remote areas of Australia, um, one of the things about the book is that uh, the royalties from this particular book are being donated to Frontier Services, which, as you mentioned before, uh, has its origins with John Flynn. What prompted uh, either Penguin or yourself to say, yeah, we, we want the royalties to go to this Christian ministry? Because, yeah, I know that they're involved in rural Australia, but there are so many great organisations that could be chosen for that. For example, the Flying Doctors or or the Remote Area Nurse Association. Why Frontier Services? Why choose this Christian ministry? Matt, I'm a great believer in things happening, um, you know, for a reason. and if you let them, they kind of pan out the right way. Um, I think initially I have to say that the initiative completely was Penguins. Um, they wanted to um, put together the stories about bush nurses and they wanted to donate the royalties to somebody. They did have a couple of ideas about that. But the thing about Frontier Services was that, well, one, last year when this was all happening, they were celebrating their 100 years. But I think the other thing was that, um, and not to take away from anybody else and particularly not to take away from RFDS because that is a magnificent organisation and one, you know, with that, with, which we couldn't do without. But with Frontier Services, you know, they, although they have, um, they're loosely connected, they actually do different things. And Frontier Services pretty much has a reputation for going where others either won't go or can't stay. And, you know, for a lot of people who live in outback Australia, the assurance that Frontier Services exists is kind of like a thing that keeps them going. You know, whether it's the patrol ministers or whether it's, um, you know, the remote area family services where it's, you know, whatever. Their support networks in the outback are legendary and, you know, they pretty much run on the smell of an oily rag, really, comparatively speaking. Mm. And so Penguin decided that, you know, that was a good idea. They talked to Frontier Services and, and uh, um, they chose to donate the royalties to Frontier Services. And, I, I mean, I'm delighted personally. I think it's a great organisation. Well, it's been fascinating to hear some of the stories, uh, fascinating to hear how the book come together. And, of course, if people want to get a hold of the book, it's called Bush Nurses, 
Uh, Annabelle Braley is the editor. She's not actually the author, as she uh, very carefully points out that these are the stories of nurses past and present who work in uh, some of the most remote places in Australia. You can find it on your local bookshop shelf, and at the same time, by purchasing a copy, you're donating money to a, a great Christian ministry. Annabelle, it's been great to meet you, and uh, great to share in some of the stories from your book. Thank you so much, Matt. As I said to you at the beginning, I just love talking about these nurses. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts, or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.